Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Exodus 3, 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to send to the, I am going to send, I am going, sorry. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. We'll pray. God, I thank you that, that you do um, want us to know you. And we could not if you did not take the initiative to make yourself known. You are a good God, loving Father. And we thank you that we have your word by which we can um, know your revelation of yourself to us. And we have your spirit, God, as we've placed our faith in Jesus to teach us and to guide us in all that is true. And so we ask God for your ministry to us as we look on your word and think on you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago I started um, what's going to be a series on the statement of faith that we have here at Bernie Bible Church. Appreciate Kelly filling in for me last week while I was gone. I had the privilege of being up in um, Portland and um, Vancouver, Washington for Stuart and Sarah Schaefer's wedding. Had a wonderful time and, and um, look forward to them being back with us after their honeymoon. Um, this statement of faith is 12 points and it can be divided, those 12 points, into the topics of bibliology, which we looked at last time, the study of the scripture, theology proper, which is where we are today, um, the study of God himself, Christology, pneumatology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. Those pretty much um, are the categories of our statements of faith. Um, A.W. Tozer once said, there's nothing more important about any person than what he believes in his heart to be true about God. So it's important that we know what the Bible says about God. And this second statement in our faith is the statement on what we believe about God. I read this passage here in Exodus 3 because Moses had that same question. God, if you're going to send me to Egypt, then what is your name? I mean, it starts with that. Who, what am I to tell people who you are? Go tell them I'm going to deliver them. Well, they're going to ask, who are you? So like this morning, some of the guys, I walked over to them and asked them what they were doing, and they said they were um, um, devising plans. And I said, what are the plans? And they said, we're going to go jump out of an airplane. We're going to go parachuting, and we'd like for you to go with us. <laughs> and so you can think my first question was, do I get a parachute? Because, you know, I... I so when God says you're gonna, he's going to send Moses to Egypt, um, it's a good question. Who are you? What am I supposed to say? 
And so we're going to look at this, and, and, uh, and before I jump into what exactly our statement of faith says, you might ask, is this really important to be spending this time on Sunday mornings um, to talk about these matters? And obviously I think it is, but, um, and hopefully you do as well. But I came across another um, um, quote, lengthy quote here that I'm going to take the time to read because I think it's very important for just setting the groundwork for why this is important to, to talk about doctrine and, and particular words. So listen again to what Tozer has to say. He said, each generation of Christians must look to its beliefs. While truth itself is unchanging, the minds of men are porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may, seem, may seep to dilute the truth they contain. The human heart is heretical by nature and runs to error as naturally as a garden to weeds. All a man, a church, or a denomination needs to do to guarantee deterioration of doctrine is to take everything for granted and do nothing. The untended garden will soon be overrun by, re by weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will short shortly be a theological wilderness. The church or denomination that grows careless on the highway of truth will before long find itself astray, bogged down in some mud flat from which there is no escape. In every field of human thought and activity, accuracy is considered a virtue. To err ever so slightly is to invite serious loss, if not death itself. Only in religious thought is faithfulness to truth looked upon as a fault. When men deal with things earthly and temporal, they demand truth. When they come to the consideration of things heavenly and eternal, they hedge and hesitate as if truth either could not be discovered or didn't matter anyway. Basic unbelief is, a, is, a, is at the back of human carelessness in religion. The scientist, the physician, the navigator deals with matters he knows are real. And because these things are real, the world demands that both teacher and practitioner be skilled in the knowledge of them. But the teacher of spiritual things is required to be unsure in his beliefs, ambiguous in his remarks, intolerant of every religious opinion expressed by anyone, even by the man least qualified to hold an opinion. Haziness of doctrine has always been the mark of the liberal. These will not quite give up the Bible, neither will they quite believe it, with the result that anything may be true, but nothing may be trusted as being certainly true. Little by little, evangelical Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definitive beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need right now a return to gentle dogmatism that smiles when it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God that lives and abides forever. Isn't that great? Good stuff. Couldn't agree more. There's a movement that's been going on in the States for the last 10 to 20 years called the Emergent Church. And one of the most difficult things about studying the Emergent Church is you can't pin down what they believe. 
That's a sad thing. This is the reason, again, for a statement of faith, so that we, we can articulate what it is that we believe according to scriptures. I've mentioned before, I did a, a brief survey of, of a dozen, two dozen or so Bible colleges and seminaries, and I wanted to look at their statements of faith and what they said. I was very surprised to find that Perkins Seminary on the campus of SMU in Dallas does not have a statement of faith on its website. I searched everywhere, and I could not find a statement of faith anywhere. That's a sad state of affairs when you will not tell people what you believe. Typically here in Texas, if somebody asks you a question of what you believe, you should, we expect a straight answer. But that's becoming increasingly rare. We know that the scripture says we are not to wrangle over words. 2 Timothy 14, 2.14. That has to be one of the favorite verses of the emergent church. We are not to wrangle over words. But the very next verse, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, we are to handle accurately the word of truth. We are also to preach the word with sound doctrine. We are to pay close attention to what we teach. We are to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered. And we are not to receive into our homes anyone who brings a different teaching. So these are clear, definitive matters that the, that the Scripture has spoken to and we are to stand on. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can you think of any one of those words that is optional, is not clear, that we can just do away with? Every single one of those words is absolutely essential. And they are meant to be clear. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which one of those words could we do away with and not change the meaning of what's being said? Every single word is given by God. As we saw two weeks ago, Jesus I believe I said Jesus says that every letter and every, the smallest stroke part of a letter shall be fulfilled and shall not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away before his word would pass away. So what is it that our statement of faith for the evangelical free church as we've um, accepted here at Bernie Bible Church says regarding God, theology proper? The statement says we believe in one God, creator of all things, Infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is personal, reveals himself to man, and answers prayer. Well, that's kind of a mouthful. So just like I do in a wedding, take it just one part at a time, repeat after me one part at a time, we're going to do that here. One God. We believe in one God. Scripture is very clear on this. Deuteronomy 6.4, probably the most loved statement in all of Scripture for the Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So there's no getting around it. The Bible says the Lord our God is one. 
the three great religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all have this in common. We believe in one God. We do not believe in a multitude of gods. We're not the Hindus that believe there are millions and millions of gods. We believe there is one God. One true God. Now that word one is interesting, and I'm indebted to Arnold Frutenbaum with this, because he's a Hebrew scholar and I am not. So there are two Hebrew words that are translated one. One is ekad, E-C-H-A-D, and the other is yachid, Y-A-C-H-I-D. Now the second of those two, and I'm not, no, I'm not pronouncing them correctly, but yachid means singularity, one without parts. But ekad, which is the word that's used here, does not mean that. This is a word that can mean one without parts, but it is often used of union between parts. It's the word that's used, for example, in Genesis 2.24, when God says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's the same exact word that's used in Deuteronomy 6. It says, The Lord our God is one. It's the same word used in Ezekiel 37, 17, where God says to Ezekiel, I want you to go get two sticks and tie them together so that they become one stick. One. And so when God says he is one, it does not exclude the possibility that he is three persons. Because that's the other thing that Scripture says, which we'll get to in our doctrinal statement. But in our doctrinal statement, the first thing it says is that God is one. He is one being, one God. But the one God, as we'll see, is three persons. We believe in one God who is creator of all things. John 1.3 says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see that God is the one who has created everything in the universe. The universe itself is made by God. So the Bible would tell us that the world, the universe, is not a result of random processes. It is not an accident. It is not undirected. But it has been made by God. He is the creator of all things. Not, ran, not ran, random, natural processes, but there is a personal creator. Now when it says all things are being created by God, it means everything that is good. Because we know that Scripture has also said that it is through one man's sin that sin entered into the world and death spread to all men. God is not the creator of evil. He is not responsible for evil. We know that God did not create Satan as Satan. He created Lucifer, a good angel. And on his own choice, he became evil. God didn't make him that way. So we attribute everything that is good in this world to God. Scripture says that all good things come down from above, from the Father of lights. God is the uncaused cause. But he has created agents that can act and create. Every cause has an agent. And God is the agent who causes all that is good. Satan is called the father of lies. Why? Because lies don't originate with God. 
they originate with Satan. Every lie that has ever been spoken has its origin in Satan, not in God. Sin and death, as I said, came into this world through Adam. We believe in one God, creator of all things, who is infinitely perfect. Infinite means there's no limits. You can't quantify God. You can't measure God. You can't describe how big He is. You can't, there's no description for Him. He is infinite in His being. We can't even begin to comprehend this. This is why we, Scripture says that God is holy. One aspect of the meaning of holy is that He is holy other. There is no comparison between God and anything in creation. This is why we know that the universe is not infinite, because if the universe were infinite, the universe would be God. Infinitude can only be ascribed to God, not to a creation. God alone is infinite. He is without end. He is infinite in His being, infinite in His knowledge, without limit. Infinitely perfect. To be perfect means to be without fault, to be without deficiency. It means to be complete. There is no growth potential with God. He cannot learn anything. He cannot grow. This is one of the problems, the fatal problems with a strict form of Arminianism that, said, that would elevate the free will of man over the sovereignty of God. Because some of the forms of, of that would say that God himself doesn't even know what we're going to choose until after we've chosen it. So clearly, God is not omniscient in their understanding. But he is infinitely perfect. Cannot grow. Cannot develop. He is. He is eternally existing. It means he has no beginning. He has no end. He has no age. One of the things that children often ask about God, one of their first questions is, how old is he? He doesn't have an age. He never ages. God can, can exist for billions of millions and whatever trillions of years. And he would not grow a day older. He's ageless. He is timeless. Time does not, does not age God as it does with us. He is the I am. He exists outside of time. He is not bound by time. He does not age nor does he diminish. We can only imagine what that's like. To not age, to not diminish, God is perpetually eternal, perpetually new. We believe in one God who is creator of all things, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in three persons. The word person um, has been attributed to God for the longest of time. I don't know, and I didn't do a good enough word study on this to find out if it's actually in the Bible attributed to God, but from the earliest church um, creeds, um, personhood is attributed to God. And for good reason, because everything that we can think that person means is true of Him. But as we look at that, three persons, we see that the Bible... Um, says that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He is three distinct persons. Those three persons share the exact same substance. They share the exact same essence, but they are distinct from each other. 
Never in the Bible are there more than three persons. Always three. Sometimes the emphasis will be on one. Sometimes even the emphasis might be on two. But never does the Bible present more than three persons who make up our Godhead. Well, why is that not a contradiction? We believe in one God who is three persons. And this is where the Jews and the Muslims would say, we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. We say we believe in one God, but we really don't. We really believe in three gods. Don't you love it when you, people tell you what you really believe? And we, we believe in one God. And we believe that each of the three persons is holy and fully God. But this is the revelation of Scripture. The one God is three distinct persons. That doesn't mean three gods. As Norman Geiser used to say, a contradiction would be to say, we believe in one God who is three, who is three gods. That would be a contradiction. But to say we believe in one God who is three persons is not a contradiction. Those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is fully God. They share the same substance, the same essence. Not one of them is less God than the other. They are co-equal in essence. They are a tri-unity. Each is eternally Father, eternally Son, and eternally Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that each one is Father, but I mean the Father is eternally the Father. The Son is eternally the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been and is eternally the Holy Spirit. That's very important. And I'll point out why in a second. The distinction of persons and names, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, denotes a distinction in roles, authority, order, and submission. Eternally. This should not be a big deal to us because Scripture is so clear that there is an eternal sonship of Jesus and that He has been eternally under the Father, positionally. Not in terms of essence. The Father is not in essence superior to the Son. But there are role distinctions that are there. He is the eternal Father. And even those people who want to deal, do, um, do away with the eternal sonship of Jesus... None of them deny that he, is that he is the eternal Father. Shouldn't say none. Some would. I don't know if you remember the book, The Shack, that came out a number of years ago. Heartwarming heresy. It'll warm your heart. And it is heresy from cover to cover. Any one of the three persons could have become Jesus in that book. Could have become the Son and why did God choose to, bring, to come as a son instead of a woman? Because it suited us. And God felt that was the best way to communicate with us. Absolutely ridiculous. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, speaking of his wife. And God is the head of Christ. That's authority. Well, maybe that was just when he became Jesus. Well, then why doesn't it say Jesus is the head of every man and God is the head of Jesus if the emphasis is on the humanity? But it's not. The emphasis is clearly on the deity. And if that's not enough to say that God the Father is the head of Christ, God the Son, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28, 
Paul also writes and says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So those verses are saying God has put everything under the feet of Jesus. But Jesus himself will for all of eternity be under the Father. You cannot understand the Trinity without understanding these names. The very names denote authority, order, submission. Hierarchy in role, not in essence. One is not superior to the other in essence any more than a a husband is superior to his wife in essence. But it's exactly for this reason that the scripture says that the husband is the head of his wife. That there are evangelicals today, and I use that term loosely, who are redefining the Trinity because they hate the idea that any man is the head of any woman. Can't be. Submission, order, and authority are consequences of sin, they say. But they understand. The Bible says that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And the Father is the eternal Father. And the Word of God says that the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ, as the God, is the head of Christ. And so they're not dumb. And they understand, because the family order is rooted in the Trinity, that if you're going to change the family order, you've got to change the Trinity. And I know at least two well-known preachers who are on record as saying there is no order, submission, or hierarchy in the Trinity. Any one of the three persons could have become son. There was a brief time when John MacArthur, and I respect his handling of Scripture in, in most instances, but John MacArthur was saying, and he published it in his commentary in Romans and his commentary on Matthew, that any one of the three persons could have become the son. And the fellowship of churches that he's involved with, they called him out and said, this is heresy. And in 1999, he recanted, publicly recanted and said, I was wrong for teaching what it says. That's a big man to say I was wrong. And I appreciate that he did that. I don't know that, I don't think he was in in any way motivated by the feminist evangelical mindset today that says I'm not going to allow for order and submission and and authority within the Trinity because I don't want it in the home. But there are evangelicals today that say Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. And they're saying that because they understand Paul is rooting these things in the Trinity. When he talks about the home and he talks about the church, he roots what he says in the Trinity, as he should. To remove the eternality from the roles so as to take authority and submission from the marriage and the church is to redefine the Trinity. Father is head, speaks of authority. Son, the one in whom the Father reveals himself. And Holy Spirit, the one through whom the Father reveals himself and the Son. He is unchanging. 
Who is unchanging? Our doctrinal statement says. Who? Singular. Three persons, one God. Matthew 28 says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is unchanging. He is immutable. And that is so good to know. Because he is unchanging, immutable, it means we can all know the same God. Knowing God is not dependent on our personal experience. God has revealed himself in his word, in words that are clear and precise. And we can each read our Bibles and know that we know the same God. He's not going to be one way to Charlie McCall and another way to somebody else. He is who he is. And we can know him because he's unchanging. Maybe there's a reason scripture says, do not associate with the man given to change. Because he is not like God. He is our rock. And there is no other, scripture says. I happen to think that the closer people get to Jesus, the more rock-like they become. Unchanging. And I don't mean that they, they're unthinking and that they're, 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 they have no heart, that their hearts are like, heart, like rocks, no. But they know the core. They know their God. And the world around them may be changing and like ships tossed about at sea, the scripture says, winds that blow about everybody. But no, they stand true. Because they know what the Word of God says about God, whether they like it or not, and whether anyone agrees or not. And you can be rock solid and be a brand new Christian. Because you simply accept what God's Word has said. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, our doctrinal statement says, taking that from Hebrews 13.8. That means there is a constancy with him. There is a consistency with him. And those words don't mean the same thing. And because there is a constancy to his character, consistency in how he makes himself known, we can have a certainty in our faith and confidence in our faith. What a gift in an uncertain world that doesn't know its left hand from its right hand, top from bottom. And we can know because our God is an unchanging God. He is personal. Personal means that he can be known. Yes, he is transcendent, the big word that theologians like to use, meaning that he is removed from his creation. He is not commingled with his creation, as the Hindus and the pantheists would say. There was one, uh, I remember, there's a, uh, I think it's called the Gospel of Thomas. And you go, why would anybody ever think these things are, are inspired scripture that were never put in the Bible? And you read the things and it says, split wood and you will find Jesus. Turn over a rock and you will find Jesus. Gospel of Thomas. That is pantheism. That is Hinduism. That is not the God of our Bible. The God of this Bible made everything that has been made, but he is removed from what he made. He is not commingled with it. He is separate from it. But at the same time, he is also imminent, transcendent, but imminent, meaning he is near. We can know him. He is not just wound up the clock, as the deist would say, and then stepped away and just let it run its course. 
He made this creation. He's separate from this creation. But he is present with his creation. He is knowable. He is engaged. He is relational. Our doctrinal statement adds that he reveals himself to man. Personal and makes himself known. It would be impossible to know him unless he made himself known. Numerous times in scripture we hear verses like these. Who has ascended up into heaven so as to bring God down? That's what they were in effect doing at the Tower of Babel. They just said, watch us ascend to heaven. We can become like God. God says, what a joke. What a joke. It would be impossible to know God unless God made himself known. The good thing is he is light. And light is revelatory. His very nature is to reveal I think it wouldn't be too much to say he lives to reveal himself. Yes, he dwells in darkness, the scripture says, but he also is light and he makes himself known. We are invited to know him. Jesus says, seek, ask, knock, and the door shall be opened. He is not hard to find. The Bible says that we, man, is, his, is the principal recipient of his revelation. He wants us to know him. How awesome is that? Our infinite, omnipotent God wants us to know him. The revelation that he makes is of himself as well as his will and his ways. He is the subject of that revelation. And we are the object of his revelation. The better we know him, the better we will know ourselves. I remember as a young man thinking, I don't, I hear people say, I am this way, I am this way, I am that. And I'm going, I guess I don't know myself. But the better we know him, the better we will know ourselves. And that's not always a good knowledge of self. And the last thing our doctrinal statement says on God, and he answers prayer. Amen. God hears us. The psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I call upon him as long as I live. What amazing truth that is. The infinite, omnipotent, almighty God hears us and answers us. He answers prayer, tells us that he is favorable toward us. What other God is like that? The pagans are afraid of their God. Or they cannot take assurance and confidence in knowing that he hears and will answer. But our God is favorable toward us. He loves us. He wants to hear us. And that is unique in the world of God's. This never changes. His heart for us never changes.
I just did a quick review of some of the passages in, in, the, um, in the prophets, Jeremiah and Hosea in particular. All the things that God has to say against his people because they have no knowledge of him. In Jeremiah 4.22, God says, My people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children, and they have no understanding. Think of this in light of the fact that God wants to be known. That he wants to reveal himself to us. Maybe the biggest indictment in all of Scripture that God has against mankind is that we don't know him. There is no excuse. Jeremiah 10.23, a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in man who walks to direct his steps. Why, knowing that, would we not cry out to God? None of us know what we're doing. None of us know how to raise our kids. None of us know how to have a good marriage. None of us know how to succeed in life. It is not in us to direct our steps. Without God, we are lost sheep. But we have a God who wants to make himself known. In Hosea, the Lord says, The Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. They do not know the Lord. And also in Hosea, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God says, I will write my laws on their heart. And the reason being that we might know him. Even for people who don't have the law written on their hearts, who've never grown up in a church, never seen a Bible, God says in Romans chapter 1, I gave him a conscience, and my invisible attributes and divine nature are revealed in creation, and they are without excuse. So much so that God says, even though they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks. So there is some knowledge of God in all people. No one has an excuse to, be, to call themselves an atheist. But again, quoting from another writer, we know him as well as we want to know him. The problem is not on God's side of the ledger. He wants to make himself known. By nature, he is light and he reveals. So even the person who's never seen a Bible, never heard of a church, they know there's a God. And I have to believe if they will seek for the God, if they will grope, as Scripture says, for the one that they know in their hearts and they know in creation exists, that God who is light will give further light and lead them to knowledge of himself. I believe Scripture is clear on this. We believe in one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is personal. He reveals himself to man, and he answers prayer. If you know your Bible, nobody should have any problem with any part of that statement. But it's not just about the doctrine and affirming it. But what we are saying, if we believe these things, is that we will be people who believe in Him and who seek after Him. A God, the God, who wants to be known. I pray that that indictment would never be true of us. The indictment, my people do not know me. When Scripture says, my ways are not your ways, that's a criticism. That's a criticism. Because our ways ought to be God's ways. I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to make the Father known. As you said, he who has seen you has seen the Father. Thank you for the clarity of the revelation, O God, that you've made of yourself. When you spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, you didn't mumble. You spoke clearly, distinctly. In your word, God, there is much that we don't understand. But there is so much that is crystal clear. I pray that we, again, Lord, as was said of the early church, that we would be people of the book because we want to know you. And this is your revelation. Thank you for all that you are. Holy, omnipotent, infinite, perfect. But that you are also near. That you reveal yourself. That you hear us. You answer our prayers. Thank you that you are personal. For the loving Father that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.